So this morning we're going to um, wrap up our series that we've been in uh, for the last several weeks called Where Is God When? Where we have looked at the lives of two men in the Old Testament and seen how God has worked in the different hard seasons, the challenges of their lives. And like we mentioned last week, uh, just because God has done things um, in a particular way in somebody else's life doesn't mean he exactly works the same way um, all the time. But there are some general principles that we can see and we can take from and apply to our lives as far as how God works in those hard seasons of our life. And today, we're going to ask the question, where is God when I mess up? Have you ever messed up? Have you ever done something that hurt someone else? Have, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong? And have you ever lived with the guilt and the shame that comes with messing up? If so, you're not alone. These past couple of weeks, we've looked at this man named David, and we've seen David as uh, one who has had his courage and faith in God, and, and through, through, through David, God slew a giant. And then last week, we saw how David went above and beyond himself, and in this reconciliation of a broken relationship with this king, Saul, and David is described as a man after God's own heart, and yet today we're going to see that David was far from perfect. One of the things I love about Scripture is how raw and real and relatable it is. It doesn't try to hide or cover up the messiness of the lives of the people in it. And when we're talking about messing up or the sin of our lives, sometimes it's difficult for us to see how we ended up in the place that we find ourselves sometimes. Before we know it, we are neck deep in the mess that we've chosen. And David's story allows us kind of this front row seat to see how sin plays itself out in his life and more importantly, what God does in our lives in response to that. So I'm going to read through this chapter uh, in 2 Samuel 11 just to familiarize ourselves with this story of David. The words will be on the screen. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab 
was doing and how people were doing and how the war was going, like he really cared. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down into his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. This is the way of saying that, hey, all of these things are currently in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may struck down, be struck down and die. And Joab was as and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast a upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David that Joab, all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messengers, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This chapter sounds like it more belongs in an episode of Game of Thrones 
than it does talking about a man after God's own heart. What we see and can learn from David's story is how sin sometimes quickly works into our lives. And maybe it doesn't lead us to murder, but I think there's a path towards sin that may sound familiar to us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in a couple of sentences, captures what sin does. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What James tells us is that the path to sin starts with misplaced desire. Sin doesn't originate out of our behavior. Sin originates out of our misaligned or misplaced desire. The core of what sin has done to humanity is it's twisted our desire. When God created us, our desire was to be only for him. He was to be the center of all of our affection and all of our attention. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden, our desire was twisted from God to ourselves. We became the center of our affection and our attention. And therefore, sin brings forth death in two ways. There's a physical death. When God originally, God's original plan for creation was that humanity would not experience death, but now all must die as a consequence of sin. But more significantly, there was a spiritual death that happened or a separation from God. And when Jesus died for us on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid for our death. His death for our death. Therefore, those who choose to follow him, the consequences of our sin, death is removed. What this means is when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are made alive spiritually because we are reconciled back to the source of life who is God. He gives us his spirit to live in us and make us more like Jesus. And while all of us will die physically one day, Jesus also conquered the finality of death his resurrection from the dead demonstrates that there is life after this life life eternal with him however even after we've said yes to following jesus and we've been forgiven of all of our sins and freed from the death consequence of sin we are still in this battle with our desire galatians chapter 5 verse 17 says this For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. On this side of eternity, there is a war that still rages within us between the desires of our flesh to make it all about us, to put us first and and in charge of our lives, and the desire of the Spirit, which is to make it all about God, making Him our priority and our focus, to have our attention on Him. 
And temptation happens when we are presented with the choice as to which desire will we follow. David is presented with the choice. Follow his desire to please himself by having Bathsheba for himself or stop pursuing what's not his. Being tempted or facing temptation in and of itself isn't sin. But once we choose to give in to and pursue our desires to do what we want to do over what God's desire for us is, then it becomes sin. It's so, it's so important to remember in all of this, God doesn't leave us alone in this choice. Not only do we have the person of the Holy Spirit living in us and continuing to try to untwist our desire from ourselves and put it back on God, but God provides a way for us to escape temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, everybody faces temptation. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When we face temptation, God provides a way out or an escape path. Look at the escape path that God provided David. The first one is like kind of subtle. You it's easy to look over it at the very beginning of the story. David wasn't where he was supposed to be in the first place. David should have been at war with his commander, Joab. Instead, he remains back in the city. And sometimes the out that God gives us is not even be in the place that we are being tempted. Every one of us knows what those places are, especially those of us who struggle with some sort of habitual sin. Just don't even put yourself in the place that you will need to make the choice. The second opportunity was the opportunity that, that David had to look away. Did you notice the two parts to what David did? First, he noticed that there was a woman bathing, and then he noticed that she was beautiful. He continued to look and to see her beauty. But when we, are faced, when we are faced with a choice to do something that we know is wrong, the less time we spend focusing on it, the less likely we are to give in to our desire to pursue that. The final way out that God provides David is the questions that he asks and get answers to. He finds out that this woman that he sees is the daughter of Iliam. Now that may not mean anything to anybody, but Iliam is one of David's mighty men, one of his closest fighters while he's on the run. And, you know, this is his daughter. There's a relational out for David in this. And not only that, but she's married to one of his loyal soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And sometimes God provides a way out by allowing us to take some time and think about the potential harm this decision could bring on ourselves and others. When we're facing any temptation, we should always look for the way or the ways that God is providing for us to escape and take it. But David ignores these escapes and gives in to his desire. He crosses the line and he sins. What David's, what's David's first response to this? 
He hides. He tries to cover it up. And this has been the response to sin from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve first disobeyed God, what did they do? They hid from him. They tried to cover themselves up. Did you notice how David tries to hide his sin? Brings Uriah back. Tries to convince him to go and spend time with his wife. Hoping that nobody will notice the fact that she's pregnant with his, David's child. And he tries to do this twice. Once when he's sober. Once when he's drunk. And then, when that doesn't work out, he's like, I'm just going to get rid of Uriah altogether. Can you imagine the twisted cruelty of sending Uriah with a letter carrying his own death sentence, and Uriah doesn't even know this? And maybe he thinks that if I can get Uriah out of the picture quick enough and I can take Uriah as my wife, no one will even know that this happened. Or, I can become the hero, and I've taken this poor widow who's pregnant with Uriah's child into my into my home, and I look like I'm the hero. It's, also, it's often our first response as well to find some way to hide our sin. We try to cover up what we've done. We try to put the blame on somebody else. We try to minimize what we've done. We try to avoid responsibility for the harm that we've caused, or even worse, sometimes we try to justify what we've done. When we say yes to following Jesus, God forgives us for all of our sin. Those we have done and those we will do. However, even though we've been forgiven, we still have to understand that our sin still has consequences that impact us and impact others the way that our sin continues to impact us is sometimes it affects us physically and mentally and emotionally. When we hide our sin, we live in guilt and we live in shame. Sin tends to isolate us. It affects how we connect with God and with others. It can affect how we relate to our family and our friends. And even though God is always with us, sometimes we don't recognize that he is because we've turned our desire and affection towards ourselves. Sin also has an impact on others. It's like throwing a rock into still, a still pond and just watching the ripples spread as the lives of others are impacted by our choice and our decision. You just think of the lives that were affected by David in the story, Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab, the men who died with Uriah. Eventually, if you read on in this story, you'll find out that David and Bathsheba's son dies. And because of David's choices and decisions, David has the consequences of even his own, his other sons being affected and dying and his daughter in a really, really bad situation. It just brings havoc into his entire home. This is why God hates sin. He hates it because of what sin does. It hurts people. And God loves people. So where is God 
when we mess up? Where is God when we fall into sin? I think the first place that we say God is that God brings our sin into the light. In the next chapter that follows this, 1 Samuel chapter 12, there's this prophet that God sends to talk to David. His name is Nathan. And Nathan tells David a story of two men. One man who's extremely wealthy. He has many uh, sheep. He has many herds. And another man whose only possession that he has is this lamb that he loves like his own children. In fact, Nathan says he treats it like a daughter. He feeds it. He cares for it. And this rich man has a traveler that comes and visits him. And rather than taking one of the lambs out of his herd, he takes this lamb from this poor man and, and, and prepares it as a meal. And David, hearing this, gets mad and says, we need to bring this man to justice. This man needs to die for what he's done. And Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. While we can hide our sin from others, we cannot hide from God. He knows everything. He knows all of our thoughts and actions, but God doesn't leave these hidden. He brings them to light. And after Nathan says, you are the man, Nathan goes on to list everything that David did. The best thing that can happen when we have done wrong is for this to be brought into the light. When sin is uncovered, it loses its power over us. Sometimes God does this through others, like our Nathans in our lives, where we have people that are willing, that love us enough to point out what we're doing wrong. Sometimes God brings us to light in other ways when it gets discovered by somebody. Or God works in you through his Holy Spirit to show you what you're doing wrong. And David's response to what Nathan tells him is absolutely amazing. David writes this incredible confession that's known as Psalm 51. And in it he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Transgressions is another word for sin. Wash me thorough from my iniquity, also another word for sin, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's living with the crushing weight of his guilt and his shame. Against you and only you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He, David realizes that it's desire and not behavior that this comes from. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my 
of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Which leads us to what God does next when we mess up. God moves our heart back to him. When, when we've been made aware of our sin and when we are willing to acknowledge our sin, especially when we're understanding the damage that our sin's done both to ourselves and to others, it moves us away from it and towards God. Our desire turns back to God. This is what repentance does. It's not just simply being sorry for what we've done, but changing our desire away from what it is we've been pursuing and pursuing God instead. God shows us that He's always been with us. He's never left us. It's just that our focus and our attention has gone to some other place or some other person. And then God does this amazing thing. God cleanses us from our guilt and our shame. When we recognize our sin and turn back to God, something amazing happens. God removes the guilt and the shame we feel. We've always been forgiven, but He takes away the weight of our guilt and our shame. We, are no, longer, we no longer have to hide, and we gain freedom from those things. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says it this way, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because though Christ Jesus, but through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then the last thing that we see is that God gives us, or God reminds us of our identity. When we pursue our own desires over our desire for God and we start to live for ourselves, it's, also, it's often easy for us to lose our identity. I think this is what happened to David. David forgot that he was a man after God's own heart and he was the king of Israel who was in authority and could do whatever he wanted. He could have whatever he wanted. And our identity can quickly become about what we do. Our success or tied to the things that we have. Our identity can also get lost in our failures or the things that we don't have as well. There's a story that Jesus tells, a, a parable that he tells of of a man with two sons. And the younger of those two sons goes to his father and says, hey, dad, I want everything that's mine, that's coming to me when you die. And basically he's saying that, you know, I'm just going to treat you as if you're dead already. I'm just going to separate my relationship with you and go do things on my own. And the father gives him his portion of the inheritance and this son blows it all. And then he gets to the place where he has nothing and all he can do to sustain himself is to feed pigs. And as he's feeding pigs, he basically comes to his senses and says, you know what, the servants in my father's home have it better than I do, so at least maybe I'll go back and just see if I can be one of my father's servants. His identity was going to be to be just a servant of the father. And then as his son is making his way home, the father's been looking for him, watching for him, and the father meets him and embraces him. He puts a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders and he calls him his son. He reminds him of his identity. He says this, for my son was dead and is alive again. When we recognize we mess up and 
we return to God, he reminds us of who we are, that we are his sons and we are his daughters. Romans 8.14 says it this way, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. I'm glad that we serve a gracious God. I'm glad that we serve a God who loves us even when we sin. I'm glad we serve a God who doesn't leave us with our guilt and our shame. I'm glad that we serve a God who forgives us, and I'm glad that we serve a God whose mercies are new every morning. If you weren't with us last week or if you are new with us, we've kind of started this new thing that, um, that a group of us brought back from Kenya a couple of weeks ago. I introduced it last week. And what we discovered when we were working with the children is the fact that the children, as part of their prayer, would do this really cool thing out of reverence for God. They would clap three times and they would say, wow, just out of awe for God. And so we brought this back just as kind of a way to continue to connect us with what God is doing in Kenya. And so when I pray, rather than saying amen, I'm just going to clap three times and invite you to join me and say, wow the end, okay? Can we do that together? Let's practice. Ready? Wow. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus and what he's done for us. That, Father, we don't have to live in the guilt and the shame of our sin, but, Father, that you cleanse us. And, Father, that you show us a better way, that you are continually turning our desires away from things that lead us to death, but things that lead us to life that is only found in you. Father, would you continue to transform us and renew us? And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Wow. Find it.